Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Would you stand with me, please, for the reading of the word? Reading out of Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, the Lord had said to Abram, not Abraham, Abram, go from your country your people and your father's household, to the land I'll show you. I'll make you into a great nation. Note that one. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I'll curse. And then this part. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Father, I pray your anointing upon your word, upon our hearts and our minds to receive, I pray this day in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We are in a series entitled Origin Story. Origin Stories is what gives us an understanding of what motivates a character, uh, what is our common history, what is truth, and, and an understanding of who we are as a people. And we find that in the book of Genesis. And we're taking a lot more time in this book than we will be in other books of the scripture as we continue on. Um, this one just has a, an incredible amount of material that is so relevant to our time and to uh, um, open that up a bit. Um, in this conversation today, if you ever wondered why the New Testament or Old Testament was called the Old or New Testament, you're going to have an understanding of that before we're done here. Um, if there is a part of you that never understood what the concepts of uh, a covenant is concerned, you'll understand by the time we're done. If you wanted to know um, the, the roots of the Arab-Israeli conflict, you'll have an understanding of that by the time we're done here today. If, if there's something in you that has just trying to get and grasp the understanding of how it was possible for the Lions to lose that game, then you will not find that answer because I don't have a clue. That was just a whole other issue. When my wife and I got married, um, we agreed together on a five-year plan. We would both be immersed in our um, work for five years, and then we were going to have children. After five years, we looked around, and, and we were having fun, so we renewed the plan, okay, for another five years. Um, we were what you call dinks, double income, no kids, life was great, and so we renewed it literally for, for another five years. After 10 years of time, we decided we better have children or we're not going to have children, so, um, and we were blessed. There have been friends of mine who have either not been able to have children or have struggled through miscarriages, and uh, I have a heart for that. We were blessed we didn't have it, so we had a child right away. And life changed dramatically. How many of you are parents? Okay. Um, then you know that depending on the kid, uh, that according to studies, you are going to expend somewhere in the neighborhood of three hundred dollars to $400,000 before that kid is out of your household, per kid. That um, if you're a woman and you have a son, that it's actually going to take several years off your life expectancy. 
okay? We have two sons. My wife is near death. Uh, um, and so, and I'm out like close to a million, okay, probably at this point in time. Um, and on top of that, when we had our first child, we'd been in an apartment for about eight years or so, and we had just bought a house. Been in maybe a year or so when, when uh, our son came along, a year or two. I was loath to get a house because um, in an apartment, uh, I could leave anytime I wanted to and pay just a small penalty or maybe nothing at all if I timed it for the lease. But once you purchase a house, there's a covenant, there's, a, there's an agreement, there's a contract in place, and it's, it's something that may not be as easy to get out of. And those contracts were scary to me a little bit too. I didn't quite understand all the details at that time as a younger person of, of the mortgage rates and all the rest that was part of it. So I was slow to get into it. So within a span of a year's time, we have a child and I'm now locked into what was my first really major covenantal contractual type scenario. And it, it was an interesting time. Oh, I forget to mention too, uh, when my son was born is also when I became lead pastor of this church. And so he was born on a Friday morning and um, I had my first service that Sunday. Um, and so that was really, 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 yeah, that was so much fun. Um, <laughs> how's that relate to this? Well, what we're talking about here in Genesis chapter 12 is related to children it's related to legacy, and it's related to covenants or contracts. Um, God is making, in essence, a contract or a covenant with Abraham. He's pulling him out of a land called um, Ur, a city that's in the land of the Chaldees or Chaldeans. A little side note, our friends next door uh, have sold recently, and uh, there'll be a Chaldean uh, social club coming in next door. And uh, Chaldeans' roots are related to Abraham, um, from historical way back. So he comes out of that land on this promise that he's going to be given land, but also, um, not just a, that he's going to be a great nation, and also all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That, that there's something that God's going to work through Abram and his descendants that's going to bless the entire planet. Remember, we've said from the beginning, the Bible is basically salvation history. It is a story all the way throughout a thread that runs all the way from Genesis to Revelation of God working and partnering with mankind to redeem this world and redeem this planet. So this is the promise. This is what's been made. But years go by, and Abram doesn't have any children. A little embarrassing, too, because Abram's name means like the exalted father or the father of many. And so you walk up and say, Hi, my name's Abram. Oh, great. Oh, Abram. Wow. Really, Father, so many kids you got? I don't, I don't have any. <laughs> okay, whatever. It was embarrassing. It really was, especially in a time period where children meant so much more than they do even today, as far as legacy, identity, all sorts of things. So years go by, he's not having any children. This promise doesn't seem to be being fulfilled. In Genesis chapter 15, we find, in fact, that he is engaging God, and he's assuming, God, you're going to keep the promise, but maybe it's not directly through me. He says, uh, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus, his steward of his household. Abram said, if you've given me no children, so a servant of my household uh, will be my heir. And the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. 
So shall your In other words, I'm going to keep my promise to you. You're going to have a multitude of children, and, and something's going to come to you that's going to bless all of mankind. Now, what's really important is this next line, verse 6. Abraham believed the Lord, and God, he credited it to him as righteousness. In other words, Abram wasn't perfect, he wasn't blameless, he wasn't fully righteous, but he believed God's promise, he had faith in God, he trusted God's promise, and God credits that to him to righteousness. Like you got zero righteousness over here, but you know what, you believe in my promise, you have faith in me, suddenly you got 100% in the bank. Really critical point, because this is repeated later in the New Testament, about how we're to interact with God, that that we don't come perhaps with any righteousness, but if we have faith in him, if we believe his promise, what is that promise? We'll talk about that in a second. Genesis 15, verses 9 and 11. He goes on, God, to make it even more real than just his words. Um, He asked for a heifer and a goat and a ram and and a dove and a young pigeon and um, brings all these together. And then uh, he has Abram cut them in half and create a lane with putting the carcasses of the animals on either side. So you're one half of a carcass, you're the other half of the carcass. Don't take it personal. And in between here is a pathway. And this was a traditional way in that time period of making a covenant or a contract. And once that was done, then the two people making the agreement would walk through those asundered creatures, repeating the, the words of the contract. And the implicit idea is, if we don't keep this contract, may we be cut apart, even as these animals have been cut apart and, and, uh, um, and, and taken out. And so um, this is what is being set up in this place. But notice what's happening in the passage is that he does this, but God's not showing up yet. So Abram's still waiting for it. And as he's waiting, birds are coming down carrying birds to start pick up the sacrifice on either side. So he shoes the birds away and, and gets them to clear off. And the sun is getting coming down. It's starting to get dark. And eventually we find out in, in later verses that, that uh, um, Abram falls asleep. And while he's asleep, in this deep sleep... God comes to him, and he begins to tell him some things. He says, yeah, you're going to have a bunch of children. In fact, you're going to have a mighty nation. But that nation is going to end up in captivity for 400 years in a land that we know now to be Egypt. And eventually I will bring those children and your children out of Egypt and to the land that I promised you. Um, But this is what's going to take place first. Uh, At some point in time, uh, Abram wakes and and, and what happens at that point in time, we find in Genesis chapter 15, verses 17 and 18, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. So God shows up in, in a symbolic form of, of this smoky, cloudy uh, um, uh, part over here and this blazing torch. And as he passes through, he doesn't, Abram doesn't walk with him. In other words, God's saying, this is an unconditional contract. I'm binding myself. You're not bound by that necessarily. I'm binding myself that no matter what, I will keep my promise to you that you're going to have a mighty nation and that people will be blessed through you. And if that doesn't happen, may I be torn asunder even as these things have been torn asunder. Interesting point with the, you know, cloudy little fire pot, the, 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 blazing, the, the blazing element, the cloudiness that we're here is that later when those children of Israel are freed from Egypt, 
we know that they are led by the presence of God. And by day, they're led by a pillar of cloud. And at night, by a pillar of fire. And so you see some echoing, some foreshadowing of that point. Verse 18 says, On that day the Lord made a covenant, a contract, an agreement with Abram about this land that he's going to give and how this is all going to happen. Well, years continue to go past. Time and time goes on. And Abram, the father of many, still doesn't have any kids. Sarah, his wife, knows about all this too. And it's not happening. They're getting into their 80s plus. So she said, let's, let's, let's do what's been done before in our society when there's a problem here. I have a servant. Her name's Hagar. Let's go for a, a surrogate parent. Unfortunately, no fertility clinics around, so you're going to have to do it the old-fashioned way. So you hang out with Hagar, and whatever child comes from that, we'll claim, we'll adopt. It'll be passed through in this way. You sit here and go, how is this? In Scripture, you find these guys having multiple wives, uh, polygamy, um, moments like this, the surrogacy and stuff, and it's like, how is that happening? Well, first, that was common in the ancient world, but it was not God's direction or indication. He made it clear in the beginning that it's to be one man, one woman, and it's to be for life. So why do these happen? Well, I think part of it's a little, as someone suggested, a little bit of a, a subtle um, undercutting of those institutions. Because in every situation practically find the scripture with multiple wives, multiple scenarios like that, it doesn't go well. Um, guys, trust me, one woman in the house, that's enough. Okay? And ladies, if, you, if you're trying to go for more than one guy in the house, you're just insane at that point in time. I don't know why you want to be trouble enough dealing with one. And so in this situation, though, they, they have what takes place, and lo and behold, Hagar becomes pregnant. All these years, Sarah can't get pregnant. Hagar is pregnant. Well, it changes her view of herself. I could do something you couldn't do, Sarah. He loves me more than you. Um, I have this blessing, whatever the case may be. And so she gets to be a little bit of an attitude comes into play. And so in Genesis chapter 16, we find that Sarah complains to Abram about that. He says, your slave is in your hands, like a really strong male character within the house. He punts to the wife. Do with her whatever you think best. Sarah mistreats Hagar. So Hagar flees from the situation. So she's now out in the desert, on her own, pregnant. You can imagine the fear, the insecurity, um, sense of abandonment she has, feeling of being used, all sorts of emotions, feelings, thoughts, disturbances. But here's something interesting. While she's there, in Genesis chapter 16, verse 7, the angel of the Lord, and this is the first time we see this phrase appear in Scripture. It's, it's, it's not an angel of the Lord. It is the angel of the Lord. There's something about this character that is unique. And there's about six or eight other times shows up in Scripture. And it appears to be some, some manifestation of God himself. There's a lot of consideration that this is a pre-Bethlehem expression of Jesus. And so the angel of the Lord, this, this personal expression, shows up and finds Hagar near a spring of the desert, and in verses six, uh, 16, verses 9 through 10, the angel says, Go back to your mistress, submit to her. And the angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they may be too numerous to count. And after he says that, he says um, to her in verses 11 and 12, You are now pregnant, and you will give birth to a son. You're going to name him Ishmael. 
For the Lord has heard your misery. Now, he's going to be a wild donkey. I mean, this guy's going to be crazy, all right? Um, his hand's going to be against everyone. Everyone's hand's going to him. And he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. He's going to live in hostility towards all his brothers. Ishmael is the father of the Arab nations. Now, she accepts this, and so she goes back to live amongst Abram and Sarah. Before we go there, one really critical thing. In verse 13 of chapter 16, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me, for I have now seen the one who sees me. You're the God who sees me. There's a woman who's, who's pregnant. She's frightened. She's scared. She's abandoned. She's devastated. All these different things. And, and here's the thing. She's not really part of the ongoing process of what God's got going on with Abram. She's actually something that shouldn't have happened at all. It was because of, a, of Sarah's uh, lack of faith in that moment and, and Abram's letting go of the moment there that this happened. It should have happened. And so why does God even care? I, I, this is important. Here's somebody who is broken, not part of the future equation, yet God stops and for the first time, the angel of the Lord literally comes and comforts her and speaks to her and encourages her. And I just want to say, for any of you that feel like you've been abandoned, any of you that feel like you're completely outside of things and lost and missed with that, God sees you. I love that phrase. He calls him the God who sees me. Someone who would have felt so invisible, so lost in this. The God who sees me. So she goes back and, and stays there. Ishmael's born. Time goes on, things continue, and, and out of the blue, God says, look, you are going to have a child, even though you're like, Sarah's 90 and you're 100, and Sarah's over listening and, and hearing this, and she starts to laugh to herself inside her own head, and, and God hears that still, and he says, yeah, you're laughing now, I'll tell you what, we're going to call the kid Isaac, which means laughter, that's the kid you're going to have, because you laughed at this, we're going to call him laughter, lo and behold, at an advanced age, they have a child, Isaac's born. So you have Abraham, Isaac. From Isaac comes Jacob. Jacob's name at, at one point in time is changed by God to Israel. Oh, did I forget? Abram. Abram, whose name meant and would have been ashamed to him for 100 years. Father of many children, he's got none. At one point in time, God engages him and says, Look it, I'm going to change your name now to Abraham. And you would think that would be really cool because he goes to friends that God's changed my name. <sighs> Finally, you're getting rid of that father of many because you got none. Yeah, I'm taking the name Abraham. Wait a minute. That means father of like many nations. You just went like double down on this thing, God. You didn't double down. Yeah, that's my name from now on is Abraham because God says I'm going to have nations come from me. <laughs> Whatever, okay. So Isaac's born though. The promise is kept. From that comes Jacob. Jacob's name is changed at one point in time as he engages God to Israel. He has 12 sons, which are the 12 tribes. When God changes names or, or does something fantastic in someone's life, a lot of times he'll change that name to emphasize it, whether it's Abram to Abraham or Jacob to Israel or Simon, who was a reed, means reed, to Peter, which means a rock. Years ago, this church's name was Sterling Heights Assembly of God. Nothing wrong with that, except that it had the unfortunate uh, um, short version of, of S-H-A-G, Sterling Heights Assembly of God, shag. So depending on what you thought, we were either carpeting, a type of carpet, um, or when the Austin Powers movies came out, much worse, 
okay? It has connotations in English. When we felt God was doing something significant here, we said we want to rename the church. What will we rename it? We named it Rock Point Community Church. Church, because that's what we are. Community, because that's what we believe in and, and want to minister to the broader community. Rock Point, why? At one point in time, Jesus is asking his disciples, he said, who do you think that I am? Who do people say? One says, well, they think you're a prophet from way back, probably reincarnated. Another one says, we think you're a really great teacher. And he turns to Simon at that time, who do you say that I am? And Simon, in a burst of spiritual inspiration, says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are Messiah. You are God. All this. And, and Jesus says, right. And from now on, you're no longer called Simon. You'll be called Peter, a rock. And he says, on this rock, I'll build my church. And there are those that think they're building it upon Peter. There are others, though, that would say, especially as you see where life of Peter goes on, that it was that statement that he made about Jesus being the Messiah, the Son of God, that on this rock, I'll build the church. And so he said, if you come to understand who Jesus Christ is, that he is, in fact, who he said he was, the Son of God, God in the flesh, then you've reached a point of understanding that is rock point. If you clear all the dirt and all the stuff away from your life and you're going down to find a place that you can build something solid, that bedrock foundation, then you've reached rock point. And that's what the meaning of the church's name was because God changes names when he's doing something significant. So he does that for Abraham. And Abraham with Isaac, and as we say it goes along down the line here, all based out of this covenant or agreement that had been made. Well, things still get a little dicey because at one point in time, Ishmael, who was around 13, 14 years of age when Isaac is born, is picking on Isaac, and Sarah sees that. He's bullying Isaac, little brother, little half-brother. And Sarah says, not going to have any of this. And again, Abram stands strong like the man that he is and says, whatever you want, dear. And so <laughs> Ishmael is banished from the household and Hagar. And so they're out in the desert once again. And this time they can't go back. And God meets them there once again and promises Hagar that Ishmael has become a great nation. And sure enough, they're blessed, they're carried on, and they become, as we said, all the Arab nations. But they are the half-brothers to the Jewish people. And where that hostility is, it's rooted from that whole thing that goes way back to this moment in time and hasn't stopped yet. Now, does this mean that God does not love the Arab people? No, he does. He, clearly, he blessed Ishmael. He cares about that. But there's a hostility that's rooted in sibling rivalry that has gone back for thousands of years, and that's the root of this conflict. It's also rooted in land that had been promised to the Jewish people, and that's a whole other conversation that we get into that down the line. So all these things take place, all this happens, and then there's one other minor point I want to introduce into this. We said that the first covenant, because it's now like the second covenant, the first one, you could argue there was one with Adam, but the first one established is the, is the, is the one with Noah. Remember, we're going to, everything is going to flood, they all get out of the flood, and then God says, look, I'm making a covenant, I'm making a contract with you, never again will the world be wiped out by water. And to do that, he puts what? His rainbow in the sky. And we take that for granted. We're so used to that stuff. <sighs> do you realize that for a rainbow to have happen, there has to be a certain angle of the sunlight. There has to be a certain moisture in there. There's certain dynamics. Okay, whatever. There is no other 
planet that we know of, and certainly none in our solar system, where rainbows occur. Venus has too thick of an atmosphere. Uh, Mars is too thin. And the further you get beyond that, there's no moisture in the other planets. As far as we can understand, no. Certainly in the planets we can see and touch. We are the only planet, and we're in this weird zone that is just perfect for life. Too close to the sun, we'd be in trouble. Too far out, we'd be in trouble. With a tilt to our axis, wrong. With the rotation, different. With the moisture, everything's just like perfect. It's referred to as the Goldilocks zone. I find that fascinating, that a thing we take for granted, we just assume is kind of... The only place a rainbow occurs is the only planet that actually has life. And so that, that is established. And then there's this covenant that we see established with Abram that somehow, and we see as the story's going on, that the, that the kids are provided for. And so, you know, you've, you've got that in place and it's all set. But there was a deeper one that said everyone on the planet's going to be blessed through Abraham. Not just the idea of his story, but that somehow everyone's going to actually be blessed by him in some way and by his actions. So what is the deeper story here? Ah, one other thing. One other aspect that God said would be part of the, of the, of the covenant in the agreement is that, that Abraham and all his household and all his descendants would be marked to remind them of the covenant. The mark was circumcision. It was to cut off the foreskin of, of each of the man's uh, um, reproductive organ. It was a way of separating that which was, was useless or, or the old flesh or something away. It was of a reminder. And imagine the commitment on that that had to be made. Abram goes to, to his whole household and says, every man's got to have this done. And so you're going to take all your fighting men and disable them for a short period of time. And the run on ice would be significant. And they're having it done as adults, not as children. And from that point forward, that was the mark of the Jewish people, that something from which reproduction from life would establish would, would be marked in some fashion. And the cutting away of the flesh that was unnecessary. So this is another aspect of what this is. So again, we're stuck with the Abrahamic covenant. Great. Isaac happens. Jacob, Israel, the rest. But what does that relate to us today on? Because we're not Jewish, most of us at least. Well, here's the interesting thing. Several times through Scripture, we see some reference to something else. The Old Covenant, another way of referring to this covenant, if you will, is the word testament. And there's an implication that, that in the midst of this covenant that's going on between God and his people, first with Abraham, later with all of them, with Moses and the Ten Commandments, in fact, there's another term called the Ark of the Covenant. And, and this happens after um, Sinai happens and the Ten Commandments are brought down and God says, create this box, this Ark out of gold. And on this, you're going to have two angels on the seat or on the covering top here that'll be facing each other like this. And as they face and bow towards each other, this place called the mercy seat on top of the ark is where the presence of God would literally come and, and meet with people. It would be where this would all be in the holy of holies in the temple. And only the high priest could come in and engage in that moment of time. And inside the ark, the reason it was called the ark of the covenant is because the Ten Commandments, the covenant with Israel, a demanding one. You had to keep the law. So it wasn't like the Abraham one that was unconditional. This one's conditional. You'll have my grace if you keep the law. There are several other items in there, but the main thing was those Ten Commandments. And this is what echoes all the way through 
the original testament, the original covenant, 400 years of silence, and then the gospels occurred. Then what we're about to celebrate in a little bit of time here, the birth of Jesus comes, which is foretold in the scripture. And there's going to be now a new covenant or a new testament that's going to be established. So you have the Old Testament all about the Old Covenant. And now you have the New Testament that is about a new covenant. Well, where did this come from? Remember, something's going to happen through Abraham that's going to bless the entire world. But it doesn't just stop there. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, Moses is sitting here at one time talking to people and says, you're never going to be able to keep this covenant. You're going to screw this thing up. And there's going to be a problem with that. But, but he goes on and says, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul, echoing the words that Jesus will speak later about the first greatest commandment. Now imagine what it would have meant to those people who had been circumcised for real, and now he's saying you're going to have your hearts circumcised. My first thought is, oh my gosh, that's not going to go well at all. But he was speaking in a metaphorical fashion, saying, look at it, in the same way you're marked this way. Now you're going to be marked in a really deep way. Your heart, the seed of who you are. There's something coming of a new covenant. The prophet Jeremiah in chapter 31, verses 31 for 33 says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a, what? New covenant. And the people of Israel, with the people of Judah, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them. In other words, I was a faithful partner to them. I kept my part. But they were adulterous. They fell away. They chased after other things and lusted after other things. This is the covenant I'll make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law not in a box, not in a book. I'll put my law in their minds. And I'll write it on their hearts, which ties with the circumcision of the heart and getting rid of that which is unnecessary. Not just Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the other prophet comes along. Chapter 36, verse 26 says, I'll give you a new heart, God says. Not just going to cut away the stuff. I'm going to give you a brand new heart and a new spirit. And I'll remove from you your heart of stone. And I'll give you once again a heart of flesh so that you'll feel again. If you're like Hagar out in the desert, nobody cares. You need to know this is the God who sees you. If your heart has become so cold and so hardened by what you've dealt with and what people have done to you, you need to realize God's saying, I will give you a new heart, a heart of flesh, and I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So you have the old covenant or the old testament. But this points to, and if you don't understand the Old Testament, you won't fully grasp or appreciate the new, this legalistic law. We have to keep it and we have to maintain it. And now we're in this New Testament, this new covenant, where there's grace. Where it's not because of the things that we've, we've done, but it's because of who Jesus is. And in Hebrews, it talks about this in chapter 7. We won't do all of chapter, but look at the chapter. It compares Melchizedek, who we talked about recently, and Jesus, it compares Jesus with all the other high priests that have come before and have gone to the Holy of Holies and interacted and, and, and have to do it over and over and over and over and was set with sacrifice all the time. And it compares instead to Jesus in chapter 7, verse 22. He has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need. 
one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted of all the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he doesn't need to offer the sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. But that one line there, one who's holy, blameless, I've heard this a dozen times, at least maybe hundreds now in this church. Someone say to, about someone else, they'll, they'll point to someone else in the church and say, that person is so, they're so good. They have such a relationship with God. I can never be that. You know, I, I'm just, I'm never going to have that. I'll, I'll never, they're so special. And I'll tell you what, nine out of 10, times out of 10, I know that person they're talking about and they aren't that special. Occasionally, they're talking about me, and I'm not that special. I've had my kids sometimes, we've had these discussions, say, well, I can't be you. Not everyone can be you, and Papa T, who they refer to as my father. I said, who do you think we are? There's only one who is blameless and pure, and it's Jesus. What we do Abram, Abraham believed the Lord and his promise and it was credited to him as what? Righteousness. In other words, it wasn't because Abram was all that great. If you read the life of Abram, he's got some stupid stuff he does. Twice he does told domestic terrorism, okay, with Hagar and all that stuff. He's messing with all the... I mean, he's, he's, but he had faith in God. He believed his promise. And that was credited to him as righteousness. It's the same with us. If you believe who Jesus is, if you believe he's the son of God, came to earth for us, to intercede for us, to sacrifice his life for us, the blood of the covenant, this is why he says at communion, this is my blood, because that was part of the covenant, those animals torn asunder. God walks through the, his sacrifice of his own son. So the grace that we have is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 says, it's by his grace you've been saved through faith, through believing the promises of God and having it credited to you as righteousness. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. So what that means is we have faith in God, we get credit as righteousness, and we get to do whatever we want. I mean, that's just great. It's like God's this big sugar daddy in the sky just party on dude if there's any kind of functional relationship we have with our parents we may know when we disappoint them or we fail them but we know that they will always love us parents you picked up that that baby and from the start that kid can't give you anything but 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 stuff but you love this kid you would die for this kid as the kid grows up if things are probably established they know that but they also know that you want them to grow to develop to, to, to learn certain things and so you try to instruct them you try to direct them and if there's any established relationship with our parents we realize they're trying to grow us and develop us but they'll never stop loving us my father will never stop loving me but I can and have disappointed him at times now he and I haven't talked for I'll be honest for like four years now because he died four years ago Okay, so we haven't talked 
But I know there's still aspects of my life that I, I, I would need to align with his values, and I strive to do that. But I also know that I have that in the area of grace that he would always love and receive me. And this is what we have with our Heavenly Father, that he loves you, that he sees you, that he knows the hardness of your heart. He knows what your needs are. When we have that faith and we believe, then there's a relationship. A covenant is established, an agreement, a partnership is established. And in that, we want to strive to be what he's allowing us to be. But not because of works, not out of fear, but out of grace. There was something that was going to come through the line of Abram that was going to bless and transform the world. And Abraham believed God. God credited him righteous. There's an old covenant of rules and laws, but it points to a new covenant of grace and belief in God that credits us towards righteousness. And ultimately, the line of Abraham produces Jesus Christ, both God and man. And through that, all people are blessed. This morning, as we begin to conclude this time of gathering, you now understand what testaments and covenants are. You now understand the roots, the conflict, still confused about the lion's game. Get over it, okay? But what is your understanding of your covenant, of your relationship with God? If you're motivated by works, we've just torn that to shreds this morning. You just think you're going to be good enough and maybe one day it'll prove it. If you're motivated strictly by grace and say, I just, I'm saved and therefore I'm, I can do whatever I want, then hopefully that's been shredded for you this morning as well. And we realize that it's a different thing. It's a covenantal relationship. And we see covenants throughout the scripture. But the most important one is this old covenant that gives us an understanding of what we can't do. And this new covenant that gives us an understanding of what we can do. That it's a new time and a new place. That there's something different that's taking place and that you and I can take hold of that and that it can change how we live our lives because we no longer live our lives alone in the desert unseen, but we walk with God. That he takes us through the bloodiness of our lives. That he shows up in the desert of our lives that he cares about what we think and what we feel, and that he has promises for each and every person in this room and beyond. There's a point in time in, in, in the, 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 the musical Camelot, one of my favorite musicals, and King Arthur's struggling in the time period there because it's all about violence and, and the people who are noble crush those who are the small people and, and you act on your emotions and, and as a king I get to do whatever I want and it's a different time but he, he struggles because he's been, he's been getting a glimpse that there's something else, there's a new way of living life, there's a new way to, to create a, a people and he's striving for that but it's against his own nature. At one point in time, he's aware that there's something going on between Guinevere and Lancelot, his best friend and his wife. And even though they've never acted on it and never would act on it, he believes there's still something that's drawing and he's, he sees it and he's angered and he's vengeful and he's, he's like, even if they haven't done anything, it's enough that they've done it in their heart and he wants to kill them both. And he struggles with this. And as he struggles through it and, and, and the process of, of a different life, of something new, of something different, I'm a king, not a man. And so I'm not going to take a man's vengeance. And as he goes through the whole thing, he talks about their devotion still to him and to the table, to the future, to the thing that they're trying to create here. He smiles. He says, by God, I shall be a king. 
And then this that has always rung out to me a bit. This is the time of King Arthur when we shall reach for the stars. This is the time of King Arthur when violence is not strength and compassion is not weakness. And may God have mercy on us all. In other words, he's saying there's a different way to live than just by our passions and by our drives or by power and strength. There's a different way to live and I can sense it. I, I, I know it's there. In mythology, Arthur is viewed as the first Christian king, the first, the one who actually comes to an understanding of God and by doing so changes a nation. This morning in this place and time, you can take hold of this new covenant. Maybe you struggled in the desert. Maybe you struggled in the darkness. Maybe you just have the process of saying, this world sucks. Why is it this way? And, and you need to understand that God never intended. He has a different plan and that you can be part of that plan. This morning that you would sit here and say, there's something different and it's this way. It's following the ways of Christ. It's believing his promise for me and my life. And even if decades go by and I don't see it, it's still having that faith and that faith is credited to righteousness. And then that grace, that grace comes to me and to my life. To your life. Father, this morning there are hearts of stone that sit quietly in these seats. There are people who are living desert experiences. There are people whose names are a mockery of what their life actually is because instead of being something of promise, it's just empty. And Lord, we as a people know the burden of the old covenant of the Old Testament. We know we cannot maintain every jot and tittle. We will never be blameless as you are, but we are in a new time, a new place. There are new rules and new ways of living and you call us to this, Lord. We just have to accept your promise of that and believe that. You are the only holy, blameless, righteous one, but you can work in our lives to change who we are and to create goodness within us by your grace. So Lord, I pray this morning for any individual who would right now, in the midst of their experience, would kneel before you and submit to you, would embrace this new covenant, this new way of living, this new place that you would prove to be, you would prove to them that you're as present now as you were for Abraham, for Isaac, for Jacob, for all those that we read about. So Lord, this morning, as we come to you, make yourself real, I pray to us. In this next week, I would encourage you, um, maybe even later today, take a look at the book of Hebrews. Take a look at chapter 7. We just touched on the edges of it today, but look at the book of Hebrews, of chapter 7. And while you're at it, read the entire book. Okay? And since you're right there already, read the entire New Testament. And since you're already in the midst of it, go back and read the Old Testament. Put it all together. Do it in one setting. Okay? <laughs> It'll soak into your brain. But, but today, you've got a broad sweep of, again, what we said. It's all salvation history, all of Scripture. It's God wanting to partner 
not just with Abraham or Jacob or Isaac, but with you and me towards the redemption of this world. Next week, we're going to take a little bit of a break, sort of, and talk about the Christmas story. But there's even the root of the Christmas story we actually find in the origin story in Genesis. And so we'll touch on that, and you'll see as we lead into it. One month, 2022 is gone. I still remember a 2001 space odyssey. We were all supposed to be out there, you know? (laughs) This is 2022, and we're going to be into 2023. God wants to have a covenant with you. He wants to have a relationship with you. And he'll still faithful to you even when you're not. He calls us to high things, but he sustains us even in the low times. There'll be those available up front here for prayer. Otherwise, join us. And don't forget Crossroads one week from tomorrow. Father, I thank you for your grace, God. I thank you that we live under the New Testament, the new covenant of grace. And while that doesn't um, uh, take away any sense of responsibility at all, it gives us a certain hope and sustenance and encouragement in the midst of everything else. So God, as we prepare now to gear up towards this final run to the end of the year, to this season of craziness and running around and all these other things that are intruding in our lives, I pray, Lord, that you prepare us, prepare us, let us prepare ourselves to celebrate your birth. Let us prepare ourselves to celebrate what you promised to Abraham so long ago, someone who was going to change the world. And let us be party to that, I pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, we ask these things. And the church said, amen, amen. God bless you.